is Our American Stories, and today we're sitting down with Miriam Roddy, the founder of National Handshake Day, which takes place on the last Thursday every June. Miriam, I'm interested in why you decided to make a holiday centered around a handshake. For over 20 years, I was in corporate communications at a professional training and coaching company, basically. And one of my jobs was to try to think of ways to get exposure, not only for myself, but obviously for my internal client, the company, and our experts. And I thought, well, you know, business relationships and interpersonal communications is a really important thing to me in general, creating those lasting relationships, not just being like an order taker or number puncher. And basically, I wanted to create a holiday with something that I guess not appeals to everyone, but everyone can relate to, and that's shaking hands. Well, up until recently, everyone had to do this in a business encounter and in a business setting, and yet they don't do it very well. Historically, when we shake hands, there's a lot of things that people don't do right. So I wanted to create a holiday to recognize that this was a really important business greeting, but that people need to do it better to really make a lasting impression. Miriam, our team has done some research and found out that the handshake isn't just a modern practice. In fact, it dates all the way back to medieval times and knights. Can you give us a little bit of a background on where the practice of shaking hands dates back to? One might even argue before that. I mean, if you do a little research, you'll see that even in caveman times, when, when you know, rival tribes or, or cavemen communities, if you will, would approach each other with maybe a, 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 you know, a handmade axe or a stick or something or a club, that's not the best way to greet you know, somebody who you're trying to build a relationship with. And eventually they would show up without anything in their hands. And that's how a handshake started, whether it was like, more like a bump of fist, who knows, or, you know, but that was it. And then it kind of morphed into, as you said, like Roman times and Greek times and medieval times with people, you know, not with their swords in their hands and eventually guns in their hands, but having them open so they could actually embrace or greet their, you know, former rival or somebody they want to build that relationship with. They're basically showing the other person, look, I, I come in peace. There's nothing in my hand. And I guess somehow someone decided eventually, well, let's shake those hands just to prove there's nothing in them. And yes, so it, it's rooted in like that original relationship building environment where they want to do something in peace rather than hostility. We've been seeing a lot of talk about the demise of the handshake. Why do you think the handshake will persevere? And what are some of the ins and outs of handshake etiquette? The handshake remains, and it will come back, I really strongly believe this, a very critical business gesture, but I don't feel like it's going to disappear because to me, it's a way of connecting with people, literally, like you're literally connecting with them and saying, it's so nice to meet you. And when you shake their hand, you're looking at their eyes, you're making eye contact, you're doing that gesture for like a good one, two, three pumps total, and then, you know, dropping it. You don't want to do things which are bad, which would be things like holding that handshake for more than like one, two, three pumps, maybe grasping the hand really tight, like what I would call bone crushing. Or conversely, if I'm a woman and a man shaking my hand, they're going to give a little wimpy kind of like, oh, it's so nice to meet you, where they're afraid to hurt the little lady. And that drives me crazy because... I should have the same level of respect as a male peer. So please shake my hand, a nice firm grip. You know, again, don't crush my bones. 
and let it go. Don't kind of give me a little soft one. And of course, there's the this sweaty palm, which, oh, that's so disgusting. Like the person must be like, I don't know, they must have just worked out or something. But, you know, there's things you could do if you have an innate tendency, maybe a little talcum powder, you know, brush it off, dry it off, you know, don't wipe your hand on your pants before you shake a hand. That kind of doesn't look so great. And if you'd like to wear rings, but you're in business, maybe rethink that because when you do that ringed torture handshake, you know, you're hurting the other person. And there's so many other ways but that you could do it wrong. But those are some of the, the top ones. Oh, and the other one, I, I uh, you see this sometimes in politics, like the, the arm grab. Like they're not just shaking hands with their other hand. They're grabbing the other person's arm or like covering the handshake like a covered shake. These, these are all kind of inappropriate in business and can make the other person feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, that's so true. And the sweaty palm shake is... Really, that's one of the worst. Let's talk about eye contact when doing a handshake. Why is that so important, Miriam? One of the things that drives me crazy um, is if I'm meeting someone for the first time and they're shaking my hand, but yet their eyes are looking over at the next person who they want to meet and they're not giving me full attention. That's really annoying. Or like you said, if somebody's staring you down, almost like a challenging way, like, okay, are you going to let your hand go before I let my hand go? Who's going to let it go for? That's ridiculous. Like you, you basically want to have a warm countenance on your face, just engaging with a smile, quick eye contact, one, two, three, done, you're done. And you continue your conversation. So eye contact is important. Don't be looking at your watch or the, over, over the person's shoulder because they can tell you're not looking at them. And that's so true, Miriam. And for our last question, I'm wondering about the handshake itself. Why is it so important? Absolutely. I mean, to me, when you greet somebody and you shake their hand, you're starting the relationship. And then let's say a month, two months, a year later, when you meet them again, you're just reconnecting with that handshake. And, you know, that's why it's so important not only to have that good professional handshake. Again, you, you hold your arm out at a slight angle, thumb joint to thumb joint, one, two, three palms total, let it go. You know, that's so important because they, they know you're receptive to that relationship and you smile warmly, you look at them at the eye, in the eye, and it's, it's a nice bond you're creating. And then that's to revisit it over time as you see them again. Or, you know, maybe you're trying to make that critical first impression at, in a new job. If you can't shake your hands well, trust me, they're going to pick somebody who knows how to do it all things considered and your resumes being equal, if you can't manage a simple business gesture like that, which is so important, and I really truly believe it will remain important, maybe not this year, maybe not in 2021, but look, we're talking historically. This thing's been around for just centuries. It's not going to go away. People are not going to start, you know, elbow bumping or, you know, high-fiving or fist bumping. Even germaphobes know you have to connect with people and it's, it's just important. And thanks to Miriam Roddy, the founder of National Handshake Day. Thanks for joining us here on Our American Stories. And it's so true. It's a critical first impression. And if you can't manage this simple interpersonal gesture, oh, my goodness, what are you going to do with others? But the last Thursday in June, well, it's National Handshake Day. And we celebrate that day here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose voice and life will surely captivate you. And in today's episode, Bob recalls his graduation from the Marine Corps boot camp and his ensuing assignments. The night before graduation, our assignments were announced. Out of 80 men, 58 would be deployed to Vietnam. Only seven were being sent off to a school. I was one of them. When my name was called, my DI hollered, McClellan, 3042, mechanized supply account. I asked him, sir, what is a supply account? He said, it means you're headed back east for supply accounting school. You're very lucky. You're a lucky private. You get to carry a typewriter instead of a machine gun. It will be your job, McClellan, to make sure our Marines have underwear and ammo when they go out on patrol. Assigned back to Camp Pendleton after school, it seemed I stepped into a beehive. The base lived up to its reputation as the gateway to the Pacific. It was just like my recruiter said. There are only two kinds of Marines in this world, young man those going to Vietnam, and those coming back. I knew upon my return to Camp Pendleton from school that my name would come up very soon. It was just a matter of time. For a few months, I enjoyed the Southern California weather and stateside freedom until I received a phone call from the clerk at the company headquarters. Your orders are here, Mac. Pick them up when you get back to the barracks. By the way, you're going to ground forces. Good luck to you. It was November 1967. I would be gone by Christmas. But at least I'd be home for Thanksgiving. When the football games ended and the cold beer was consumed, my family would sit around the table for Thanksgiving dinner. The sound of loud conversations and arguments over who got what piece of the turkey were very typical in my house. But once all the plates were filled and the eating started, the noise started to subside. It was during this lull that my mother turned to me and she said, Craig came home today and it would be nice if you went to visit him. I knew Craig had returned. I saw the feature story on him in the Sunday newspaper. They had a big picture of him sitting in his wheelchair wearing his green Marine Corps uniform. One leg of his trousers was folded under and the other covered his prosthesis. He lost one leg at the knee and the other one at the hip. His right arm extended with a grasping device to use as a hand. He lost that arm at the shoulder. He was wounded two weeks before he was due to come home. Sitting prominently among the campaign ribbons on his chest was his purple heart and a bronze star with a V for valor. He vacantly gazed into the camera with little life in his eyes. The article discussed his wounds and stories about his boyhood. They interviewed his teachers and peers who remarked about what a great track star he was and all the potential he had. He was full of dreams, they said, of a bright future. And how tragic it was that he would lose three limbs in the war. The article didn't even come close to the Craig that I knew. I told my mom, I said, I suppose I will. Immediately, my father leaned forward in his seat and with a stern look and his finger pointed directly at me, he said, 
You don't have to see him if you don't want to. This is your last lead before going overseas, and seeing Craig is not going to do you or him any good. He will be here when you get home. See your friends and enjoy yourself while you can. But I did go see Craig. I had to. He was my friend. We were friends in high school. And now with both of us being in the Marines, it gave us something more intimate than just being buddies. He was my friend and a fellow Marine in trouble. And to leave without even visiting him would have been an unconscionable disregard of his sacrifice. The newspaper didn't discuss how he ended up joining at age 17 after dropping out of high school. He had poor grades, difficulties at home, and had not run track since ninth grade. He led a troubled life. I know because he spent some of that troubled life with my friends and myself. In 1965, at age 17, he left for the Marines, and at 19, he went to war. We spent the days together drinking all day. We talked and laughed about our crazy friends and our experiences in high school. The drinking, the fighting, the police, the mayhem we caused. In and out of our conversations, he would pause and recount in detail the area, the action, and the mine explosion that vaporized most of his body. He said it all happened so fast. One second he was trying to clear a path out of a village through a minefield that was being overrun when an explosion nearby caused him to move his foot just a couple inches too far. He said he heard the click of the trigger. Boom. He stepped on one. But Vietnam was far away for both of us, so we lost ourselves in the alcohol for those afternoons, and for a while it seemed as if he'd never left home. The fun quickly disappeared, however, when we went out into public. When Craig wheeled his chair into a bar, it seemed like everything stopped. The lights would continue to blink, and the jukebox kept playing, but the activity stopped, and it would become so quiet that you could hear the pool balls clicking in the back room. His anger was always just under the surface, and it would start to rise as the looks of the people gave evidence to all that he frightened them. He could see the looks of pity and aversion that people showed when they were near him. He made them uncomfortable, and he knew it. Conversations were very awkward. They ranged from cheerfulness as if nothing changed to sorrow for all that did. No one knew what to say to him. The welcome sign over the bar was not for him. His presence was too dark for levity, and his wounds were an ominous warning that his fate could be waiting for all the men in the bar. He knew, too, that the pretty girls would no longer be part of his life and that they would never come back. He resented that the people around him were drinking and laughing while he and men like him were getting shot and stepping on landmines serving their country. His drinking would accelerate, and as he verbally provoked people looking for a fight, he would get out of control. He wanted no intercession from me on his behalf. It didn't matter if anybody wanted to fight. It only mattered that he did. The loud cracking sound as he broke a pool cue on the edge of a table to running his wheelchair into someone or brandishing his pistol was evidence of the pain and conflict in a man who was down to his last 85 pounds of his body. No one would try to control or reason with him. The police, they would just simply let him go. 
He was a hurricane that you had to wait out until it exhausted itself. The pain from his body and psyche would become more visible as he tried to overcome his handicaps to be normal and fail. I have never seen any time in my life more pain in a human being than that of my friend. His emotions were uncontrollable, and he was unable to understand why they just didn't let him die on the battlefield and avoid coming home to this half-life that awaited him. Being around him, I felt impotent and helpless. There was just nothing I could do for him. He was so deeply wrapped in his pain and self-destruction that in a short time, he would recede from life and disappear. He told me that's what he wanted. He just wanted out. We talked a lot about what was going on in Vietnam, and though I tried to remember that not all men die or come home like Craig, the reality and consequences of war were very hard for me to ignore. I began to question the wisdom of enlisting and worried about what was ahead of me. I developed both doubt and fear. I understood now why my father cautioned me about making this visit to see him. In April 1983, the hurricane finally blew itself out. Craig Albers died at the age of 33 and is buried in the Willamette National Cemetery in Portland, Oregon. I still mourn the loss of my friend. I still think about him. I guess I always will. He deserves to be remembered. I understand more deeply now why he'd wish they'd left him there to die in the battlefields with his men rather than bring him home. He told me that there was honor and nobility dying on the battlefield with his comrades and being back here home alone. That was the Marine Corps way, he said. He felt guilty not being there with his men still fighting. Like his body, he thought there was something left incomplete by coming home. There was one more friend I had to say goodbye to before leaving for Camp Pendleton. Like Craig, he was in the news. Only he was serving eight years in the state penitentiary. And when we come back, we continue with the McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's stories, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to Bob McClellan's story, now spending time with his childhood friends right before his first Marine Corps assignment. His mother drove me down on visiting day. I remember walking under the guard towers and through all the fencing and barbed wire walls to reach the door to the prison. Moving from one chamber to the next ended each time with the cold boom of the steel door slamming behind us. The loud click of the lock as the bars closed took us deeper and deeper into the prison. There was no way out. Deep into its interior, we were escorted into a large cafeteria and seated. A guard brought Charlie out to see us, and 
stood by to keep a watchful eye on him while we talked. The room was full of noisy conversations as babies cried and people spoke in very loud voices. Within the concrete walls, the acoustics bombarded our ears with the cacophony of a chorus of wailing and verbal chaos. He seemed changed as we spoke. He didn't appear to be the man who put the knife to my throat. We talked about Craig and what was going on at home. He described to his mother how the warden showed interest in his potential and was giving him better jobs. He smiled when he told her that he attended church on a regular basis, which pleased her tremendously. He reported the various compliments he was so proud of that he was getting in his reports and how hopefully he would be released early, come home, stay with her, get a job. She was very pleased to hear he was doing so well. She had spent a lifetime visiting him in places like this and wanted to see her boy lead a happy Christian life. It was a wish she would never live to see, but for the moment her grief and pain was relieved. She became very emotional and she asked the guard if she could use the ladies' room and she left us to talk. I smiled and I told him I was really glad he was changing so much when he interrupted me and said, oh, that's I'm doing real well here. Man, I get on the outside now, I buy and sell dope. I make money selling the stuff I could smuggle back in here. He continued rapidly telling me about his plans when he got out, and it became real clear to me he was going to be the same man when he got out as he was going in. A dangerous, violent, drug-addicted criminal. He stayed that way until after many years of destruction, addiction, and 39 arrests, he went to his brother's apartment one day, and while sitting on the edge of the bed, stuck a shotgun in his mouth, pulled the trigger, and sprayed his brains all over the wall. Driving home with his mother from the prison, I stared out at the countryside and tried to absorb the experiences I'd had on my leave. Now that I was at the end of it and due to be deployed, I wondered again about the wisdom of my enlistment. I had two possibilities out of high school. Stay here and risk ending up like Charlie, or go in the Marines and possibly ending up like Craig. I tried to reason the answer out, but it escaped me. There was no clear answer, and I was hungry for some certainty, some certain outcome that I would be okay. At 17, I couldn't stand very high in my life experience to see what was ahead on the horizon. The answer waited for me out in the future, and I had to live through it to know what it contained. But I had to make a choice nonetheless. I didn't spend a lot of time deliberating my decision to enlist. I learned from my father that courage isn't found in thought. It lies in the ability to act in the face of uncertainty and take a chance. So I took one. On the night of the 16th of December, 1967, I stood in a long line of Marines waiting to get our assignments before departing for the Marine Transit Center at Camp Hanson, Okinawa. Some of the two-and-a-half-ton canvas covered trucks were full of RC bag, while the others were loading Marines as they came out of the building and, once full, departed for El Toro Marine Corps Air Station. Each Marine carried in their record book the division and regiment to which they would be assigned. Standing with some men from my prior assignment, waiting to be called, we talked about the likelihood of being assigned to the logistical command in Da Nang when I noticed two Marines standing on a porch pointing to me and motioning me to come up front. 
Reaching the porch, I was greeted by Kassane, who was going overseas, and Scotty, who was not. I was surprised to see Scotty there and asked him, what are you doing up here? He said, I'm here on temporary duty. I work in order section, Mac. Where do you want to go? Vietnam or Okinawa? For a moment, I stood there trying to fathom what he was asking. In my confusion, I blurted out, Okinawa. Well, where in the hell is Okinawa? It's an island somewhere over near China or Japan, he said. He gathered four of us who all had the same MOS of supply accountants and marched us into the building past a line of Marines that snaked along the hallway toward a loud thumping sound at the front of it. At the desk was a Marine with different colored rubber stamps bearing the names of the many divisions and regiments we were headed for in a matter of hours. Do they need supply accountants at 3rd FSR, Scotty asked, and assign these Marines to the 4th Service Regiment 3rd Marine Division, Camp Foster. The Marine at the desk took the four folders, opened them up, and with a boom, 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 he stamped 3rd FSR, 3rd Mardiv, into our record books. Our destiny was now determined and assured. I thought about the promise that I made to my father. He made me promise not to volunteer. I think we both felt it was ceremonial as it was inconceivable that the possibility of not going to Vietnam even existed. I had mixed feelings about being a Marine on a small island in time of war. I felt guilty. I'm in the Marine Corps, for God's sakes. I felt a pull to prove myself and to see what I was really made of. This was the war of my generation, too, and it looked like I was going to miss it. But my father's words were very clear. If they need you, they will send you. If they don't, don't ask for trouble. I felt the angst of having something to prove to him, but my father didn't believe war is the place to prove something about yourself. You fight because it's necessary. You win so you can come home. To him, it was that simple. We'd fought at Guadalcanal in Korea, and yet this was the promise he extracted from me when I enlisted. I realized too that his opinion was the only one that mattered to me. And if they don't send me, then I won't be there. The next night, I sat in a brightly lit classroom at Camp Hans in Okinawa, waiting for the actual battalion and company to which I'd be assigned. Some time before dawn, I fell asleep in my desk until the Marine next to me woke me to say, Hey, hey, I think they just called your name. I walked up to the counter. I noticed that the room was almost empty. No doubt everyone was in the back getting their jungle boots, packs, jungle fatigues, and miscellaneous gear to get ready to head to Da Nang. Standing at the counter, the clerk simply opened my record book, stamped Headquarters Battalion Supply Company 3rd FSR, and pointed to the door and said, All right, Marine, there'll be a bus here at 0800 to pick you up. Tell the driver you get off at Camp Foster. As I walked to the door, I walked by Kassane, Fury, and Green, who sat off to the side with a small group of Marines, stopping to ask, Hey, aren't you going to Camp Foster? I immediately sensed something had changed. Kassane opened his record book to reveal a red line stamped across 3rd FSR, and underneath it was stamped 1st Marine Division. During the morning hours, everyone had had their orders changed.
Out of the two Boeing 727s that flew over the night before, there were only two of us waiting for the bus on the corner to go to Camp Foster, Okinawa. Everyone else headed south to Vietnam. And thanks to Bob McClellan for these stories, the McClellan Files. By the way, an underappreciated fact about our military is just how many support troops it takes to put one rifleman into the field of battle. There are about 10 support troops for each one dedicated to frontline combat. We don't hear enough about these men and women working in logistics, administration, transportation, and so much more. This is Our American Stories, Bob McClellan's story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and today we're celebrating famed advocate and philanthropist Helen Keller. We sent our Hillsdale intern Shadrach to her birthplace to learn more about this woman. On June 27, 1880, in Tuscumbia, Alabama, Helen Keller was born. She was a healthy baby, born to a former Confederate captain and his wife on their homestead of Ivy Green. She lived a normal life for her first 19 months, but then disease struck. Doctors will often argue if it was either meningitis or scarlet fever. Whatever the answer, she would never see or hear again. Helen Keller began communicating using rudimentary sign language to talk with the daughter of the house cook. By age seven, she could communicate with her family using 60 special family signs. Even at this age, she began surmounting obstacles, learning how to guess someone's age and sex based solely on the vibrations that their feet made on the floor. I made a visit to Ivy Green and met Sue Pilkelton, the executive director of the Helen Keller Museum that's housed there. Under her leadership, tens of thousands of people a year visit the sleepy town of Tuscumbia, Alabama to see the Keller homestead. Tuscumbia is not on an interstate, so you've got to know you're coming here to get here. We're very proud that we have between 35 and 40,000 visitors a year that come from all over the United States and the world. I always say we're not a state museum or a national, we are an international museum. Ivy Green's museum encompasses Helen Keller's childhood home, preserving it for people of all ages to enjoy. As Helen Keller got older, her parents began seeking someone to teach her. Through the recommendation of famed inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, they found the Perkins Institute for the Blind. The school assigned Ann Sullivan, a former student who was visually impaired, to be Keller's instructor. Ann Sullivan was to teach Keller before she attended school in earnest, which was a long and arduous process. Sue described the beginning of this journey. When Ann Sullivan arrived here in Tuscumbia, she realized that Helen Keller was very spoiled. But of course, Captain and Mrs. Keller did not know how to deal with a child that had become deaf and blind. So basically, they just let her do whatever she wanted to do. And when Ann Sullivan came, she decided real quick, I've got to get her away from the family and get control of her. So they put her in the carriage, which was 640 acres, and they drove her all around. 
and she thought she was going far away, but she just actually came next door to the main house. Sullivan signed words into Keller's hands, attempting to communicate basic concepts like doll or mug. Helen often became frustrated and lashed out, leading to physical altercations between the two. But Sullivan persisted and eventually reached a breakthrough. Anne took her out to the water pump and she began to pump water and spelling it in Helen's hands. And at first she didn't understand it. And then all of a sudden it was like the key just opened her brain and her mind and she learned water. That was her first word. So she spelled that into Annie's hand. And that day she learned 30 words. So the pump, that's where the breakthrough came. People often associate Helen Keller with that moment at the water pump, the moment where the world opened up before her. Sue told me about her experience with the people that come to visit that water pump. Helen Keller toured the world during her lifetime and left an impression on people from every major nation. But that impact was especially felt in Japan of all places. Yesterday, we had 25 visitors from Japan that could not speak any English whatsoever. But when they got outside and saw the water pump, they began to speak and take pictures. And I often say that little black pump speaks many languages because they definitely know when they get here and they see that pump, what the pump is all about. And that little black pump spoke volumes to the Japanese people. Something easy to notice when you see the sheer amount of Japanese Helen Keller paraphernalia on display in the museum. However, to Sue, the most important guests are those who share Helen Keller's struggles. You know, we want everyone that comes to the birthplace of Helen Keller to leave here with a great positive uh, experience. But when we have someone that comes here, like Helen, we take up a lot of time. And we want them to know that it's very important that they get the full experience of touring the home and grounds. And it's very important. That is our mission. We want everyone to be excited and have a wonderful experience. But most of all, someone with a disability. Perhaps the most famous rendition of Helen Keller's story is the play and later film The Miracle Worker. Every year, Ivy Green sponsors performances of the play, making sure to accommodate those with disabilities. Last Thursday night, we gave a special performance of The Miracle Worker for a group of deaf or deafblind people uh, throughout the state. They had a convention at Joe Wheeler State Park, and they came, and it was amazing to watch their facial reactions as they were experiencing the pump and and the play itself they really understood and you know as a sighted person many times we take things for granted but it was amazing by the end of it how emotional this group of people who were deaf or deaf blind or just blind really reacted to experiencing the miracle worker after her encounter with the water pump helen began school in earnest all the while dreaming of attending college. Sue described the journey that was Helen's education. Helen Keller was the first deafblind to ever go to college. She went to Radcliffe College. Through the years, Helen had a lot of obstacles, and they didn't want her because of her disability. And she said, no, I want to go. So they put her in the room and uh, made her take all kind of tests without Ann Sullivan being by her side. And she 
scored so extremely high, they had to allow her to attend Radcliffe College. When Keller graduated, she began working as an advocate for the blind. She traveled the world, raising money and spurring people into action, all with Ann Sullivan at her side. And despite her success as an advocate, she always resented her inability to speak normally. Here is Helen Keller herself, speaking with the assistance of Ann Sullivan. It is not blindness or deafness that burns me in my darkest hours. It is not blindness or deafness that bring me my darkest hours. It is the attitude that I put men in not being able to speak normally. It is the acute disappointment in not being able to speak normally. But rather than this sorrow from experience, I understand more fully. But out of this sorrowful experience, I understand more fully human strivings, all human strivings, thwarted ambitions, thwarted ambitions, and the infinite capacity of hope, and the infinite capacity of hope. The infinite capacity of hope. Despite these challenges, Helen continued, and even though she was unable to speak normally, she stirred something in the hearts of the crowds that she addressed. The inspiration of one woman's fight set in motion a new worldwide appreciation for the struggles of the deaf and the blind. Ivy Green hosts a yearly camp for children that inspires them to persist despite their disabilities, much in the same way that Miss Keller did. We have started a new camp here at the birthplace in the fall, and it's called Camp Courage, a Helen Keller experience. Uh, we invite children that's grades four through six that are deaf or blind or both or even just have uh, sight or hearing disability. But they come and they eat around the dining room table and they do candle making and they use the scents of ivy green which Helen Keller often talked about the magnolia and the roses because blind people see through smell. And then we have team building and that's very important to these children because so many of them are so withdrawn they don't deal with other kids very well but when they get here and they realize that the other children have the same disability they really bond with each other this is all made possible through the charitable donations of private donors funny enough a japanese american doctor initially financed the camp it was her strength that inspired so many people and helen keller's legacy is far more than a story her tenacity and willingness to strive has persisted long after her death, which would not have been possible without the adversity that she faced. I truly believe if Helen Keller had not been deaf and blind, the work that is being done today would have never been done because that she dedicated her life to let people know you may be blind, you may be deaf, you may be deaf-blind, but if you set your mind to it, you can do all things. You may have a disability, but you can do anything if you set your mind to it. But that was Helen Keller's mission. You know, don't look at me as a deaf person or a blind person. Look at me as a person. I can do all things because I've set my mind to it. I went to school. I work every day. I don't want pity. I don't want pity. Helen Keller's story itself 
holds the power to inspire and continues to inspire countless people, despite her death in 1968. Thanks to Ivy Green and Lions International, that little black water pump will continue its mission for generations. And great work to our Hillsdale intern, Shadrach, and that's Hillsdale College. And this is the story of Helen Keller, and it comes from Tuscumbia, Alabama, the home of the Helen Keller Museum. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for our Relationship Story Hour, as always brought to us by the great folks at Communio, and you can reach them at Communio.org, and as always told by our own in-house expert and marriage guy, J.P. DeGantz, and he's the founder of Communio. And we turn now to J.P. for this week's story. Chris and Miko are marriage coaches with Live the Life, a key partner for Communio. They both grew up with loving families, but families that express their love in different ways. Miko had two affectionate parents. Chris had a mother who loved him, but a father that was not in the picture. Chris's mom worked tremendously hard and was professionally successful, and she was always there to support him financially in what he wanted to do. If I wanted to do it, she would pay for it, and it was a no-brainer. But I didn't stick to anything, and because of that, I think I lost a little bit of my identity. And um, I tell the story to anyone that's willing to listen. I, have a, I own a blue bat today. And this blue bat was a bat that my mother purchased for me when I was probably 10, 11 years of age playing baseball. And I often struck out, uh, just didn't have uh, good bat speed. Didn't really have any coaches that pulled me to the side. I wasn't going to any of the drills or wasn't participating in any camps. I just kept playing baseball and kept striking out. Um, Long story short, when you fast forward, I realized when I purchased that bat, the reason I got the bat was because of the color. Blue is my favorite color. And my mother was at the store with me, allowed me to get the bat of my choice. We went to the register, purchased it. Well, fast forwarding, uh, I was playing baseball with a softball bat. So a kid ill-equipped having a tool, but not the right tool for the right event. So having confidence as a young boy, becoming a young man, being raised by a single mother, being raised by the village, if you will, but still missing out on that father, meant quite a bit. The differences in how Chris and Miko were raised meant they had some very different models of how adults show love. Not having a close, touchy-feely, very affectionate family 
marrying Miko and seeing how her family carries themselves when they're around one another was fascinating and quite foreign to me. I didn't see my grandparents show any sense of affection in terms of a kiss until I was in my 20s, almost 30s. Whereas Miko's family, I saw her uncle and her grandfather, these two big, robust men kissing each other. And I'm like, what is going on? So Miko enjoys the, the, the affectionate side that I didn't really get as a kid. Chris naturally shows his deep love through service and financial generosity because that's what he received as a child. Miko gave and received love a different way, through physical touch. That is my number one love language. And I, I was perplexed for years by why I would find myself in an emotional ditch on the side of the road in our relationship from time to time. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Here it is, Chris is an amazing person. He is, a, he's a great husband. He serves me in ways that I didn't even think that I needed to be served in. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal father. Miko, why, are, why do you not feel loved? You know, why is your love tank low? And it was once we began to engage in this work that I realized that physical touch is my primary language. And for him, it's number one for me, and it's like the last one on the list for him. So even though he was doing, he's this amazing person in all these other areas, the one area that I needed him to be the most amazing in, it didn't come natural to him and he didn't realize that he had to be very intentional in that area. And it wasn't like he was withholding, but I think for me, it was the revelation of understanding that this is what I needed. And then articulating that in a way that he could understand and then show me love in a way that was meaningful to me. Chris and Miko also brought different views of money into marriage. But just as they've worked through issues about how they each give and receive love, they've each developed restraint and communication skills so that they grow closer even through disagreement. Chris and I were having a financial conversation and we were in the kitchen and as he's sharing, I can feel my emotions kicking in and ramping up. And I make a statement and then he says to me, Basically, okay, I can see already. He said, I can tell by the look on your face. I wasn't listening to him. So he was sharing his feelings and his thoughts. And he could tell by my tone and what I said and the look on my face that he was not being heard. And in that moment, I'm talking, it was seconds that the following occurred. I paused. Miko, you're not listening. You're allowing your emotions to override your thinking lean in and listen to what Chris is telling you. So I apologized and I said, I am so sorry. You're right. I, I really wasn't listening to what you said. I was just focusing on what I wanted to share. And, and I'm doing, I'm saying this, I'm still emotionally wired, but I'm making a choice to honor 
us and him by allowing him to share and me to listen and then paraphrasing back so that I make sure that I heard what he said. We wound up having a really great conversation. We didn't solve anything, but he was heard. And what important words. We didn't solve anything, but he was heard. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Chris and Miko. And our Relationship Story Hour is always brought to us by the great folks at Communio. And we're looking for your stories, too, folks. A marriage healed, a marriage repaired. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. More with Chris and Miko. Their stories. Here on Our American Stories. we continue with Our American Stories, and we've been listening to J.P. DeGance tell the story of Miko and Chris. And this story is brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Communio. Go to communio.org to learn more. And if you're a member of a church or a community group of any kind, uh, look them up, because marriage is, well, a quarter or maybe even a half are all around us, need help, maybe more. And we can help each other and change the country one community at a time. And now we return to Chris and Miko's story and J.P. DeGance. While Miko expresses her love through touch, Chris shows his affection in a different way. Serving is my background. I love serving others. My occupation, uh, different non nonprofits that I support, but more importantly, my wife and my kids. I enjoy making their lives better because I feel as if that was my, that's my responsibility. Sometimes it's to my detriment because it drives me crazy, but some of that's on me as well as to, once again, not having certain things in my life early on, I can sometimes try to overcompensate. Um, so I have to be careful of that as well because I think some dads, some men can get into the trap of trying to do too much because I didn't have this, so let me make up. This wasn't done for me, so let me try it. Well, I didn't see this in my, you know, so I have to be mindful of that. Miko's always understood and appreciated her husband's love expressed through service. And they had talked about how she wanted more physical touch in addition to that, but they were still not on the same wavelength. When we, you know, I've been sharing with Chris about, you know, me wanting uh, non-sexual physical touch. So he thinks he's doing a great job. And I was not feeling, you know, the, the love, if, if you will. And so we were having this conversation and he said, oh my goodness, I feel like it'll never be enough because he was making an effort. Well, the problem was he was speaking my language, but not my dialect. So I speak English. I have a girlfriend from New Jersey. She speaks English, but her English and my English are not the same. The dialect is different. 
So yes, he would give me a hug, but it was this five second church lady hug. Okay, that I'm sorry, that doesn't ring my bell. I need a 30 second full on embrace. And so just that, that coaching that he was open to, he, he was like, okay, I can do that. Now, let me just say, that initially the 30 seconds his body was was quite stiff and tense and i had to remind myself miko this doesn't come naturally for chris he is loving you intentionally and so you're going to have to be patient with him okay i got it you know um so it's been a process but honoring you know i want celebrating his heart to serve me in that way and then making the effort again we're not you know on the mountaintop with that yet but we are definitely not where we used to be so first off no one needs a 30 second hug <laughs> and i would say <laughs> yes it is true i have to improve in that area so speaking to the men out there that might also struggle with this i would say baby steps do not become overwhelmed as i have uh, learn from my mistake but it is something that once again being intentional hearing the heart of your spouse and in confidence and in faith and belief you can to get there but on the other hand i think it's important for, in this case, Miko and any wives out there that may have the same issue, to be patient with us in a loving way, yes. um, to encourage us in that area, because as I mentioned earlier, uh, not seeing my grandparents show any affection, that was the marriage that I was around the most. I never really saw them hug. They loved each other and it was evident beyond belief because my grandfather served my grandmother until the day he died and that's where i think i picked up my servant um, my servant mentality or or perspective however and, and my grandmother gave my grandfather the business she was very clear with what she wanted she was very direct i almost think of myself as that we're a modern day of my grandmother and my grandfather you know i just had that revelation <laughs> Yes, I think so. Yes, I think that is, is I, I think that's the case. But with that, being intentional, recognizing that is an opportunity where I can be better, but yet it comes with, you know, a level of patience and prayer and, 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 and encouragement. As they have matured individually and as spouses, Chris and Miko have sought to love one another in the way that they can best receive it. Are we going to choose to be emotionally mature adults and give our mates what they need, even if it's not a need that I have? Wow, that's powerful. Throughout their marriage and over many moves, Chris and Miko were active in children's ministry. When they came to Jacksonville, they decided to branch out and start working with engaged and married couples. Marriage ministry can be intimidating and sensitive. It's easy to feel ill-equipped. Miko helps dispel some of those feelings. And you don't have to have any special skills to have the heart 
to impact another married couple. If you are, you know, in a marital relationship and it's, you know, relatively healthy and I don't say perfect because there are no perfect marriages because there are no perfect people, but just doing life with another couple can, can impact, can make an impact beyond your wildest dreams. You know, we've, we've been married for long enough and been around enough couples to know that a lot of couples aren't having as much fun as we're having. You know, their their hearts aren't really tender toward their spouses. And, you know, there 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 is opportunity there to to serve other couples and marriages. And so we literally jumped in. Uh, our church was partnered with Live the Life, who has been in the marriage ministry space for over 20 years in, in Florida. And we became certified in everything we could become certified in. And it also enriched our own marital relationship um, as well as that of just other relationships because what we teach applies to any relationship. What I've learned, we, we're all called to relationships. We're not all called to marriage, but we are all called to relationships. And so once we, and we started working with premarital couples, those, that was the group that we started with. So couples who are still, you know, in that their high on love phase and, and um, had a, having an opportunity to help, to encourage them, equip them with some tools while the, the cement is still wet in their relationships, if you will. And from there, began to work with married couples and, we did that for about a year, year and a half, just serving and loving and facilitating workshops and hosting small groups in our homes. Um, we find that when people are in community like that, they will open up and they will share. We were, we're we are very transparent people, and so we that allowed others to feel safe that they could share with us, and from there. There was an opportunity with Live the Life. There was a position available. I was looking for a job and it was just a divine appointment. I, I jokingly say, you know, I now get paid to do what I was doing for free before. And it has been amazing. One of the relationships that's been most impacted by my jump into this relationship education space has been that with my 17 year old daughter. You know, again, all relationships require the same ingredients, if you will, to be healthy and whole. And you've been listening to Chris and Miko Page. And this is our relationship story hour brought to us by the great folks at Communio. And by the way, J.P. DeGance and Communio lowered the divorce rates in Duval County in Florida 30% over three years. And that's why we're bringing this to you. Um, so many married couples... Well, they're having problems. They don't know where to go to. The problems aren't unbelievably terrible, but they're there and they're lingering. And, well, we like to bring these stories to you because they're manageable. And listen to the excitement in Miko's voice and even Chris's as they try to navigate their differences together. When we come back, more with the Pages story, our relationship story hour, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and our Relationship Story Hour. And, you know, we were just batting this around. This isn't an advice hour on relationships because, my goodness, who wants advice? It's through these stories that we learn about ourselves and relate to others. And not many couples share raw stories about their marriage or about their finances. These are things people lie to their best friends about and maybe even themselves. So let's return to the Pages story and brought to us, as always, by Communio, the great folks at Communio. You can get them and reach them at communio.org and their founder, J.P. DeGantz. We left off with Pages having just joined the marriage ministry life and live the life, one of the great marriage ministries in this country. Back to J.P. Chris and Miko are now all in with Live the Life and Marriage Ministry. Chris has really enjoyed working with the husbands of these couples. Some of these couples, you know, you learn almost more than what you are teaching because it's kind of like a teach-back moment. And, uh, but it's just so fascinating to be able to walk through life with a man that's struggling with an issue similar to me but 10 years ago or an issue that I've never encountered and how do we do life together now that he is in this situation, but feeling I'm a part of that now and how do I help him? I think oftentimes what I've learned through this process, men are reluctant to share. Men have been very reserved for various reasons. Some it goes back to their childhood, some it could just be their temperament, some it's pride and a host of other issues. But the more, as men, the more we as men talk to each other and share that really you're no different than the next guy. Your issue may not be my issue, but I have an issue just like you. You might could help me with my issue as I'm helping you with yours. And nothing less than at least the encouragement and affirmation of another man joining with another man to help. Because we feel as if we have it together. We feel as if we're invincible. We feel as if we're Thor, Superman, Batman, whatever character you want to. It's okay. We all have cracks. And those cracks can be cemented with love by another man helping you, strengthening you. One thing that Chris has learned firsthand and through coaching other men is the importance of hearing each other out. Encouragement and affirmation, very strong a very strong point for men to have that from their wives. Even if the idea is as crazy as we need to spend $20,000 on something that she knows is completely crazy. But just the fact that you hear, hear it out, understand the reason for the request or even the thought. Maybe there's something that goes back to that man's childhood and he's always wanted to do that. And right now might not be the right time. He in turn will realize that because of other pointers or points that you will probably share with him. But the fact of hearing it out, letting him clear his thoughts, letting him just speak to his creativity, his vision, his wish, because I don't think any man wants their dreams to be crushed especially being crushed by their spouse. This shows a love and respect for one another that goes a long way. Not only do Chris and Miko work through serious discussions, they also like to have fun together. One night, Miko wanted to go to a game night with some other couples, but Chris 
Haven't had a busy week, really being a bit more introverted, wasn't so keen on it. So we get there and, you know, I'm already observing like, okay, what kind of event is this going to be? And how long will it last? I'm looking at the watch, but minute by minute, event by event, I, we stayed there almost three hours and I did not want to leave to the point it was so much fun laughing at each other. We were uh, from three-legged race to, we were playing badminton and we were the champs. We got five trophies, line dancing, which is something Nico enjoys dancing. So we got a chance to check that, that box as well. She won the line dancing contest. Uh, we were playing against other couples with, on badminton to the point where we were the only ones there. No, we were just waiting on anybody to come and challenge us because we, we had played so well and it was just phenomenal and I was exhausted and I was sweating, but I didn't want to leave because I had just the grandest of times. Much of what Chris and Miko have built in their own beautiful relationship, they now teach through Live the Life. There are many different exercises to help couples stay connected. They can help couples in crisis establish a clear path to improving their marriage. But this isn't limited to marriages in so-called trouble. The same tools can improve an already great marriage. In either case, the ongoing investment into the relationship is what's key. Here's one of Miko's favorite exercises that any one of us can use, a way to regularly build connection with our spouse. So it's the daily temperature reading and you start off with appreciations. And so you're sharing one thing you appreciate your spouse for. And it doesn't have to be an activity or something they did. It could be who they are, an aspect of their character or personality. Then you have new information. So you're sharing, yeah, hey, you know, something happened that you'd want to share that would be impactful to your mate or your relationship. You've got puzzles. Puzzles could be anything from, I'm curious by the tone that you took with me earlier today, is everything okay? Or I'm puzzled by what's going on with my mom. She hasn't been feeling well. So it's something that impacts you. Your spouse may be able to clear that puzzle up or not, but at least you're, you're, you're sharing that so that your spouse knows what's going on with you. Then you have complaints with requests for change. That is the constructive way to share with your mate a complaint that you have. And so it'll sound something like this. I noticed Chris that you leave your shoes in the middle of the floor I'd rather you put them in the closet on your side done so I've stated my complaint and the activity or the request that I would like to see or how I'd like to see that that be different and it's only one complaint with request for change um, also um, and it's small it's not something nuclear but you know something small then you have wishes, hopes, and dreams. Or, again, this is where you're sharing what, what's on your heart. What are you hoping for? What do you wish you know, life would look like for yourself or for us or our family? And then prayer requests. Um, prayer is like 
glue for your marital relationship. And so you would share a prayer request with your mate. It could be a prayer request about anything that's on your heart. And then right there, your spouse prays for you. And so you go back and forth in like you're playing tennis. One person shares an appreciation, then the other person, one shares person shares new information. Um, and so really that takes about seven minutes. It can spark conversation, but we encourage couples to take the conversation outside of the tool. So once you get through with the tool, you can have the conversation because you're starting on a high note and you're ending on a high note. In the middle of this daily temperature reading, couples also have the opportunity to apologize to each other. Whatever their disagreements, the husband and wife remain on the same team. We're fighting for us, not fighting for me, not fighting for you, but it's fighting for us. And hearing that, once again, listening, being intentional, and ensuring that, uh, once again, we're not dirty fighting, which could ultimately surface and creep up, but planning in advance, here's when we're having DTR. As Miko said, there's a beginning, middle, and end and it's coming from a good place. And it's nothing like ending on a positive note about dreams, hopes, desires, and then literally praying for one another. We have enough in society destroying and tearing marriages down. Why can't we uplift each other? And no matter what your faith, background, belief, Everyone wants to have a healthy, happy marital relationship. We all have that in common. And thanks to Chris and Miko, and thanks to J.P. DeGance and Communio. Again, go to communio.org, our relationship story hour, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and now it's time for our second part of our three-part conversation with author, entrepreneur, and teacher, Seth Godin. He's the author of one of the most popular blogs in the world, which you can find at seths.blog, as well as 19 best-selling books, including one of my favorites, Tribes. You can find the other parts of our conversation at OurAmericanStories.com, and this second part is about the stories that we tell others especially as we go about our daily work. And we start off by talking about marketing first, which has a bad rap in many circles. Well, marketing has a marketing problem. And the reason it has a marketing problem is that selfish, short-term thinking, narcissistic individuals have hyped and hustled their way to manipulating people into giving away money that they shouldn't have. I don't think that's marketing. I think we should call that scamming. Marketing is what I call it, when someone tells a story, a true story, that changes things for the better. That's marketing. So you're doing marketing when you get somebody to enroll in your institution. You're doing marketing when you raise money for charity. You're doing marketing when you get people to take their tuberculosis drugs. You're doing marketing when you get people to quietly get onto the airplane without a lot of fuss and muss. These are all choices we make in how we tell a story to others to help change their behavior. And if you are not proud of what you are marketing, then you need to market something else. It's not okay to say, I'm just doing my job. 
because you are using really powerful tools to change other people. So when folks are busy running misleading things on the internet, when they're busy pushing people into a corner, whether it's at a check cashing service or somewhere else, that's not okay. It's not okay that you're getting paid for it, and it's not okay that it's just your job. That when we are doing marketing, we're doing something personal. We are telling another human being a story, and we better be proud of the impact that that story makes. Let's talk about a word you use a lot, and it's empathy. And one doesn't necessarily equate the word empathy with the word marketing. Why, why that word empathy, and why the word practical in front of it? So empathy, I think, is a moral obligation, but practical empathy is the only way to appropriately market something. So a simple example, uh, you're a comedian, you used to be famous, now you're on the downside of your career and your agent calls you up. Great news, I got you a gig. 300 people bring your best stuff. It's high stakes. So the comedian really brushes up, shows up for the gig, delivers everything beautifully. There isn't one laugh the entire set, not one. He's crestfallen. The agent calls him up apologizing. He says, I didn't realize it. It was an Italian tour group. No one in the audience spoke a word of English. So the question is, whose fault is it that the comedian bombed? Well, I don't think it's his fault because no one told him that the audience didn't speak English. The practical empathy comes in when you realize that you are busy telling stories to people who don't understand them. That we have to begin by saying, everyone else doesn't know what I know. They don't necessarily want what I want. They don't believe what I believe. And that's okay. Because if you can't say that's okay, if you have to insist that they are wrong, then you can't go to where they are. And they're not going to come to where you are. But if you can go to where they are, you can now teach them something. You can show up empathic for who they are and where they came from and help them get to where they want to go. And if you don't have practical empathy for the people you are marketing to, you should market to someone else. Indeed. And talk about the word trust. Okay. So the two core elements of anyone who wants to tell a story are attention and trust. And sometimes they're out of whack. Attention, because if you're telling a story in a locked room and no one can hear you, no one knows there's a story. But attention is insufficient. Because if you're screaming at Twitter if you are spamming people, if you are going through a loudspeaker, people are going to ignore what you have to say. You can't steal attention for long. And that leads to the second thing, which is trust. Because someone is willing to share their attention with you if they trust that you won't waste it. They are willing to take a look at the back cover of your book if they trust that you're the kind of person that sees them and understands them. Trust means that someone is taking a shortcut and giving us the benefit of the doubt with their time or their money. And too often, hustling marketers forget that trust is the most precious thing they can earn. I heard you mention about a Gillette. You, you spoke about a Gillette ad you heard on a podcast, and they were trying to catch up to Dollar Shave Club. Talk about what they did wrong with that ad. If you work for a big company, a legacy company, a company that has buildings, it's very easy to become nationalistic about the whole thing, that this is the mothership and we must defend it. And so the people in Procter & Gamble see the 
demise of network television as a threat to them, not an opportunity for everybody else because they built their business on soap operas. That the people at Gillette look at the uppity behavior of Dollar Shave Club and they say, how dare they? Don't they know how hard we worked to earn the privilege of being Gillette? And so when you say to your customer, stop worrying about your faith, your life, your family, and start worrying about us because we need you here, the customer will say, no thanks, because the customer doesn't have to come to you. They have the power to decide which story they will hear and what will resonate with them. And what people care about is not email, it's me-mail. They want to be seen. They want to be treated with dignity and respect. They want opportunity. They want someone who is trying to tell them a story to have heard them first because you cannot be seen until you learn to see. Let's talk about the word service. Uh, or, and I like to use the word servant heart, but service is a really important word to you. Talk about that word. So you can have a scarcity mindset which says that everything you're doing in business is taking from someone else, that the goal is to, if not rip people off, at least get more than your fair share. And one of the problems with that is that when good people think about becoming a marketer or a salesperson or a teacher or a leader or anyone who seeks attention and trust is it makes them uncomfortable. They don't want to take. They don't want, they don't feel like they're entitled to take. Well, what if we flip it on its head? Jonas Salk didn't take anything when he invented the polio vaccine. He gave millions of people hope that if you can view your work as turning on lights and opening doors, then you can be of service. And if you're able to do that, well, then not showing up isn't generous. Not showing up is selfish. Showing up, here, I made this. Showing up, here, this is something I'd like to sing for you. That's a generous act. It's not a taking, it's a giving. And if you can reconfigure your work so that you can honestly say, I am giving something to the people who are trading me their attention, their trust, and their money, and you truly are giving them something, then it's way easier to push yourself to do it even more. Indeed. Talk about the word zero-sum game or the phrase, because you use it a lot and you see it as a mindset that is destructive in many cases. Talk about that. Right. So a zero-sum game is, uh, if I have it, you don't have it. If you have it, I don't have it. That if we think about a farm, if everyone in town came to the farm and took an apple off the tree, the farmer would go bankrupt. Apples are a zero-sum game. Ideas, on the other hand, are not. If you're in the idea business and everyone in town comes and takes your idea, your idea is worth more now that people know it, not less. That you're not paying me to be on this show because spreading my ideas to other people, this generous act of spreading them, doesn't cost me very much. In fact, the more people who know my ideas, the better I do. So what the Internet has done is given everybody this magical tool, and we all have the same version of it. It's a keyboard. It's connected to a billion other people. If you have a generous idea to share, that is not a zero-sum game. That's a network effect. And the network effect says that the more people who use it, the more it's worth. 
I guarantee you the first fax machine was not worth as much as the millionth fax machine. Because the first fax machine could send a fax to no one. Because if you send it to yourself, you get a busy signal. Whereas the millionth fax machine could send a fax to 999,000 other people. So the more we are able to generously share our ideas, the less the zero-sum game kicks in. Let's talk about the word humility, Seth. You use it a lot as well. Well, you know, usually when we say the word humble, we're talking about somebody who's not humble. And I think ego is really important. Ego drives us to do this generous work. Not egomania, but the ego of believing we have something to contribute. But once we have something to contribute, it is easier and more effective to contribute it with humility. That's practical empathy. To say to somebody, you know, this might not be for you, but here's what I made. That is totally different than saying, I'm the smartest person in the world. You have to do this. And humility opens the door for enrollment. It gives people a chance to decide to step forward. And when people are enrolled, then we can lead. Humility opens the door for enrollment. The words, the insight, the story of Seth Godin, our story in the end, how we talk to ourselves, how we think about ourselves and think about others. Seth is the author of The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, Tribes, What to Do When It's Your Turn. And Seth also has one of the most popular blogs in the world, which you can find at sets.blog. Seth Godin's story, here on Our American Stories. 